this morning in front of my friends that you will empty me. God, empty me of myself, empty me of any false, selfish, or impure motives, and fill me with the presence and power of your Holy Spirit that gets to declare good news today. God, I pray that hearts will be touched and lives will be formed and transformed because of the words that flow out of me this morning. I holding my hands, all different forms of wounds, of scars, of brokenness, of sin, of hurt, whether it was because of our own sin or because of what has been done against us. And God, there's no one in this room that I want to leave this place today unable to make steps to freedom, unable to see how you're inviting them into freedom. So God, come with your power. I ask not for drips from heaven or passing showers to come over us before a downpour of the kingdom of God and your Holy Spirit to fall upon this church today and to set us free. And the church said, amen. I want you to remain standing as we declare the word of God, and then I promise I'm going to let you sit down, okay? We stand on these promises today. Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the universe and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have come to fullness in him, who is the head of every ruler, ruler and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed, he disabled the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. And the church said, amen. Please be seated. So when I was um, a teenage boy being raised back in the mid-late uh, 90s, I went to a lot of youth rallies, and there was this youth rally that started circulating throughout America, and I think it was only around for a short time, uh, but it was a WWE, Jesus versus Satan youth rally. And what they would do is Jesus and Satan would wrestle each other in front of a crowd. And the whole point was, you know, it was like this big wrestling match. And, and everybody's supposed to be cheering on Jesus, right? And, and then it, um, it, Jesus in this youth rally would fight like Rocky. Like there's really no defense, you know. So, 
Satan's getting his blows in, and then right when you think Satan's going to win, Jesus comes back, and, and Jesus wins, and everybody celebrates. And I think most of us who have ever been involved in, in youth rallies, like sometimes the people who put these things on uh, don't think through everything, right? They're not the, they didn't think through every situation because you got to, like somebody should have thought, like what if Jesus in this youth rally, what if he like hurts his hamstring? You know, what if his, what if his back goes out and he's not able to defeat Satan? Like what do you do then? Like does the the, the Satan just experiences this blow of what's supposed to be like a powerful, invisible Holy Spirit that then takes him out. You know what? What do you do? And I, I don't know if anything ever went wrong. I just know that it went down differently in Scripture. In Revelation chapter 20, towards the very end of Scripture, you have this scene where you got the city of God and then all these forces of darkness come against the city. And the way it's set up in Revelation 20 is it makes it look look like it's going to be this long, drawn-out war because the the city of God is being surrounded by all sides. (laughs) And the powers of darkness come in, and it says, They marched up over the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And then here's this one sentence. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And that was it. Like what you thought may be this knockdown, drag out war becomes the fire of God comes down, consumes them. That's it. The fight was over so quickly. Uh, now, even though in the moment while Jesus was hanging, I can't imagine what it was like. I mean, 24 hours, he did go through so much abuse. Uh, his body was brutalized. He hung on a tree for six hours, which all of that is so much more than any of us could do, Right? I mean, I'm so grateful that in the moment where pain looked Jesus in the face, and when he's experiencing all of it, that he, he didn't run and he didn't turn in another direction or call for angels to come down, which would have interrupted the plan of God at the time. But he, he endured. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. But if you think about it in the terms of time, what happened with Jesus with his death happened within like a 24-hour period of time. And it was such a short little moment and within the the scheme of human history, and the the only point I'm trying to make is in a very short time, Jesus transformed the history of the world. Within this moment leading up to a cross, six hours on the cross, in this small little time frame, the whole world has been changed forever. And we declared earlier a new song, I'm so grateful for Kip and the praise team leading us in that song, Never Once, that these scars and struggles, they're on their way. But with joy, we're going to say that never once did Jesus leave us alone. And Jesus rose from the dead with these scars in his hands and in his side and in his feet. He, he wasn't raised in a way where everything on his body was changed because those scars told a story. And we've talked about this quite a bit in this church. Because some of you in this room, you're carrying some deep wounds in your life. And they're not just physical. They're emotional, psychological, social And reality is that a scar is a healed wound. And some of us aren't to the point where our wounds have become scars because we're we're either keeping them infected or we're we're struggling allowing God to heal some of those wounds in our lives. Scars are healed wounds. There's not a single scar on your body that you bear that does not have a story that goes with it. You will never look in a mirror and find a scar and think, how in the world did that get there? It's because you fell off a bike when you were four or who knows, I mean, you mess your knee up or you had a c-section and there's a scar you know why the scars are there and jesus rose with scars because his scars told the story of the redemption of god 
And if Jesus' body was raised with scars, I wonder if ours will be too. That even when God comes and make all, makes all things right, that we will have scars. And they're not going to send us back into our guilt. And they're not going to send us into a depression. They're, it's going to be a declaration of, look what had happened to my life. But look how God redeemed everything in my life. And I think this is why Colossians 2 matters. If you're not in your Bibles, open them to Colossians 2. I think this is why it matters. And it's why for three months I've been waiting to preach this text on Easter Sunday. Uh, because Colossae was a city that wasn't too far from Laodicea. If you remember Laodicea in Revelation chapter 2, they were, it was the city where uh, Jesus came and said, Hey, like, I wish you were either hot or cold, but you're just lukewarm. You're just, like coasting in life. And Colossae wasn't too far from Laodicea. And, and if you read, it's just four chapters. You can go home and read it later. If you went and read Colossians... What you'll see, there are a lot of references to pagan life or to... There's so many references to a past life that you're left thinking, there's no way these people were Jews. They were not raised as the people of God. These are pagans. These were Gentile readers. These are people who have been touched by God, have been grafted into this new story. So at, at one point, they were out of sync with the Lord. They were so hostile to God because of the sin in their life. And if you read through Colossians you have these amazing declarations about Jesus. I mean, in some ways they're better than almost any other book that Paul writes. There are that many declarations and proclamations about how good Jesus is. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, because in him and through him all things were created. And then you have what we read and what we'll read a little more in Colossians 2, verse 8 through 15. And there are other powerful declarations. And here's why. Listen to me. The reason Paul is having to remind them of how good Jesus was. It's because they were forgetting how good Jesus was. It's because they had been drawn into this story. Yet, as they were drawn in, they were also backtracking. They were going back into other practices. So it became this faith where they were holding on to Jesus and they were holding on to other things. And any kind of gospel that even you try to hold on to, where you're holding on to Jesus and something else, that something else becomes an idol because Jesus does not like being co-lords. Jesus doesn't like being a co-lord. He doesn't like being a co-master. It's not Jesus and something else. And this can happen so easily in our lives. I mean, there are people who, are, who I think are going to die and be with God one day, but in, on the judgment day, and I don't know how all that's going to go down, I think they may be asked, like, why did you hang on to your name brand of Christianity with more power and passion than you, than you hung on to the good news of advancing the gospel and Jesus in the world? Like, why did you think it was more important to hold on to Methodist traditions or Church of Christ traditions or Baptist traditions than holding on to the beauty of Jesus? And I, I think all of us need to be careful in an election year that we don't hang, hold on to Jesus and our politics as if the kingdom of God and the future of the kingdom depends on who's elected in November. Because who's ever elected in November, and I'm not saying it's not important and you don't need to pray about it and think through it and make decisions, but who's ever elected, one day they're going to die and there's going to be a tomb on, their, on the ground that's going to represent where they died and where they were buried. The one we follow is not one who has some tomb you can go see where he's been placed in the ground he lives forever it's not jesus in politics there's six and a half billion people on this world who are not making decisions in december based on who's elected in november 
sometimes people come and they ask me, Josh, what does it mean to be saved? Like, what do you need to do to be saved? And here's my answer, and I don't mean to make this sound so simple. Because I don't think salvation is, boils down. I don't think what gets you saved is a, a prayer you pray or a confession you make, and I think those things are important. I don't think it's baptism, and I think that is so important. And I don't mean to make it sound so simple, but maybe I do. You are saved because of Jesus. Baptism isn't what saves you. Jesus saves you. A confession isn't what saves you. Jesus saves you. And all those other things are important, and they bring us into the family of God. But it's Jesus, a person, our source of life. As Paul puts it in Colossians 2, verse 8 and 9, and verse 9, For in him, in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and every authority. Jesus embodies everything there is to know about God. He embodies everything about salvation. And you come to fulfillment. You were made complete in him. Jerry Maguire is wrong. There's not a wife that will ever complete him or you. There's not a spouse who completes you. There aren't kids who complete you. Quit trying to find something or someone to fill a void that only Jesus can fill in your life. There's a void inside of you, this emptiness that can only be filled with Jesus, and you can try to stuff it with people that you think fill your loneliness or your depression. It can only be filled with Jesus. And what Paul says in Colossians 2 is here's how we enter into this partnership and this relationship into this beautiful covenant God has set up that you were, in verse, uh, verse um, 11 and 12, you were buried with him. If you underline in your Bibles, underline with him. You were buried with him and you raised, were raised with him in the power of God. In this power, buried with, raised with. Whenever I baptize people, almost every time, I tell them before I uh, baptize them, look, I'm going to leave you underwater for about three seconds. I'm going to hold you down there. And I usually tell them ahead of time, and I count three seconds, because if somebody's holding you underwater for three seconds, it feels like eternity, right? And here's why I'm going to do it. I just want you to think about what it's like to die to yourself and have just a moment there with Jesus before you come back to life. Uh. About six years ago, I baptized Diario uh, Rockamore here in our church. He's a stocky dude, about 6'5". I mean, he's a, he's a dude, just solid rock. And we were standing right back here, and you all were singing a song. And I, I, I told him, I said, man, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you down for three seconds. And I want you to think about Jesus, because when you're 90 to 95 years old, I want you to remember what was going through your mind when you surrendered your life to Christ. And Diario looked at me and he said, man, I just have one question. Are you going to be able to pull me back up? And I had a straight face and I said, man, I have about an 80% success rate, all right? So if I don't get you up, you die with Jesus, all right? And I think in that moment, I literally scared the hell out of him, all right? In every way. (laughs) He's like, yeah, man, if I don't come up, I guess this is it, all right? I'm going to be with Jesus. I can't tell you how many people I've baptized where I see tears streaming down their faces. When they think about new life, about a fresh life, about a clean conscience, about a heart being made pure before God, because isn't this what humanity wants? I mean, isn't this what people you work next to and live next to, isn't this what they want? I don't think anybody loves being held bondage. We crave freedom, and we aren't really sure what that freedom looks like or where we get it or where we find it. 
And it's why back in beginning in probably the second or third century, when they would make baptisms, when they finally, you know, for the first couple of hundred years of Christianity, people were baptized in lakes and rivers and the sea and in ponds and in water. And then they started making baptistries. And when they did, there are pictures of these where there was a, a way you would enter into the water and then there was a way you would exit out of the water. There was an entrance and an exit. So you would have steps that would take you down into a, a baptistry, and then there was steps that would bring you up on another side. And there was this theological statement they were making that the way you go into the water is not the same way you come out because we're going in a new direction with Jesus. It's a new way. It's a fresh life. And who doesn't want that? Because what baptism declares, what Paul is declaring in Colossians 2, you were buried with him. You were raised with him. So don't make little of Jesus. Don't make little of this covenant that you've been drawn into with Jesus. Yeah, we, yeah we're here today and we know evil exists. And we know evil spreads. And in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't just humanity that went crazy, like all the world went crazy. I think in that moment is when natural disasters and you even have animals that would begin to kill each other. Did you know today, like there are ground squirrels that will eat their own babies. You have hyenas that when, when they give birth to twins, the stronger twin will fight and destroy and kill the other twin within an hour after birth. And the mom and dad just sit by and watch it. And you may be thinking, did you watch National Geographic prepping for your Easter sermon, you know? And I just mentioned some of that because I could go on telling stories of violence and, and evil and how it exists and how it spreads. And I, I guess the reason I even go to, like, ground squirrels and hyenas is because we know that evil is closer than we want to even announce and declare. Where even this past week, right, there was another bomb in an airport. ISIS is on the move. And then we even look like in our own city and you see evil exists and evil spreads. And it's why we've been in this series now for seven weeks about sin. Like what's the good news of sin? And the good news of what Jesus does with sin. Because almost every week we were, we've been diving in scripture together to see of what is the good news of what Jesus has done to our sin and how he wants to release us from our sin. And almost every week something I've, told you in different ways is be really careful with those small sins that creep into your life because those are the ones that end up leading and building and then bearing this bad fruit in your life. Like I have, I've sat with a number of people who have suffered from infidelity and adultery, yet I've never heard a story. I've never had someone sit in my office or go to coffee or over lunch. I've never had a story of adultery where someone said, well, man, everything in our marriage was going great. Everything was fine. We were connecting on every level. Everything was good. And then I was walking through the mall one day, and this woman came and tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, you're kind of cute. You want to hold hands? And we did. And then that's what, that's what did it. I've never heard that story. It began with some kind of moment of bitterness or a little bit of anger or a little bit of disconnect that then would grow and grow, and then people began trying to find love and attention and affection from some other place. There are times where I hear of teenage boys who engage in forms of pornography or they're caught doing something like that. And then I hear sometimes people say, well, it's just boys being boys. It's just teenage boys being boys. And I'm like, you can't say that. You can't say that. We can't think that if we're coming at this as people who've been called into freedom and righteousness because little things turn into the bigger things. 
And it's why Scripture declares, hey, take sin and evil seriously. But you take it seriously by taking Jesus seriously. And how He sets you free and leads you into new life. Deep in my bones. Man, what I want for you and what I want for this church is I want us, I want to help us find recovery. Which means we have to be really careful of what questions we ask when it comes to sin in our lives. Because sometimes when, when we sin, what we think is, what did I do? What's the punishment? Uh, and and it, it's, it, it's all like justice-based. And, and that's not always wrong. But I also know many of us were raised in churches where the, this, this image of God is like God was this all-seeing sniper who just had you in his lens. And make sure you don't do the biggies because God may throw down lightning and, and strike you. So when we think about sin, it's what did I do? What do I need to try to avoid doing? Because there's some punishment that comes with it. When I read the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, something that blows me away every time is that when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't hold grudges. When Jesus rose from the dead, he wasn't holding the betrayal of his disciples over them. He wasn't like, like if Peter, when they're sitting there eating a meal or out eating breakfast on the beach, and Peter had to go out in the woods to use the restroom or something, Jesus wasn't saying, hey, you're going to betray me again? You've done it once. You're going to do it again? It, it wasn't, he didn't hold grudges. And even in Luke 22, when it says Jesus was being beaten and Peter was there, and it says Jesus looked at Peter and it broke him down. We don't know what that expression was like. But I imagine it was some kind of expression of, it's going to be all right. Told you it's going down like this. But the kingdom of God moves on. The questions we need to ask when it comes to sin, to hurt, to brokenness, to pain is this. What harm has been done? What is needed to repair it? And who is needed to bring the repairing into our lives? And it's Jesus who comes asking those kind of questions, wanting to repair whatever has been broken. And in Churches of Christ, we are part of what is called the Restoration Movement. And I, I always want us to be careful that it's the Restoration Movement. It's not a preservation movement. It's not trying to preserve anything. It is trying to restore whatever it is in the world that has been broken. Verse 13 through 15 is some good news. I want you to live in this for a few days. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive. Look to your neighbor and just tell him, God made you alive. God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example over them, triumphing over them in it. It's the taunt of God. It's God who makes this spectacle of the powers and authorities of darkness. And when you hear about Jesus disarming or disabling, at least I think of those movies or those shows where there's a bomb and there's a time on it and it's going down there like 10 different things and you got to cut the right one. And nobody ever cuts the right thing to, to like uh, keep the bomb from going off. They never cut it with nine minutes left, right? It's like five, four, three, uh, paper, rock, scissors, which one should we do? And then they, they cut it and they, they want to live. And I just imagine something like that, that right when the world thought evil was going to win, Jesus came and he disabled, he disarmed everything. Because when Jesus died, death thought 
that death was attending the funeral of Jesus. Death didn't know it was attending its own funeral. That by watching Jesus die, it was going to die forever. So I want you to know this evil exists, but so does God. Evil spreads, but so does God. And this is the good news. The good news that we get to embrace, the good news we get to live into, the good news we get to live. And I want us to live this kind of good news because if you don't know this, there are a lot of people in the world that when they see Christians coming, they run in the other direction, either because they're going to throw a track in their face or because they're coming and they're not being bearers of good news. And I think the good news when it comes to the Sycamore View Church and who we are today is we are not stainless steel Christians who don't bend or break. We do bend and break. And we do hurt and we have forms of brokenness and we express them to each other because we realize that here in this place, it is a place where the broken are received and the sick are healed and the gospel is preached and where we come with all of our faults, all of our sin, our wounds and our scars, but we boldly claim together that we are children of God because of what Jesus has accomplished. We boldly declare that we are a church that can look at each other and tell each other we're not going to be held down by any force of darkness, but we're pressing together into the future. And so because of this, we pray as if our lives depend on it. We pray for each other, and we sing together, and we join together as if eternity depends on it. So I want to invite, uh, I want to invite our shepherds to the front, uh, whoever's not in position A and B. Will you guys just come to the steps? I just want to spread out some cards for us this morning. I've asked our shepherd just to come and start praying over forms of wounds and scars and brokenness. You guys will just sit and kneel, whatever you want to do on the steps. What I wanted uh, for Easter Sunday... It's for you to see that our shepherds are here. This is not for show. This is witness. Every week when we take your prayer request, we pray over them. And today, I want you to witness leaders who are taking you before God as we sing a couple of songs this morning. I don't want anyone to leave this place today not wanting to take a step to freedom. And I don't know what that needs to look like in your life. There may be someone here who has never been buried with Christ in baptism and has been raised a new person and if today is the day for you, Rick Gillespie's right over here to my right, and I want you to come find Rick, and I want you to tell him that you are eager to join a new life, and Rick's here to receive you. We have a couple of shepherds who are standing to receive you for prayer. We have shepherds up on the steps right now who are taking you before God, all wounds, all scars, everything we are, asking for freedom and new life. I came across a story the other day that I'd never heard this before. That back in World War II, there were Nazis who failed in their efforts to kill all the physically and mentally disabled people. If you didn't know that in World War II, the Nazis had this mission to just take out everyone who was mentally and physically handicapped. But their mission didn't follow through. Because there was this nurse in one of those clinics who was a Christian. And she was a woman of deep prayer. And this woman became suspicious, and her suspicion became reality when she knew that they were converting some of the rooms in that facility into, into gas chambers. 
And she began to pray that the heartbeat of heaven would fall in that place and that, that the heartbeat of God would destroy whatever it was that was causing this to, to so many people. And then she started documenting what was going on in that facility. And then she went and she told her bishop. And then that church rose up. And it was because of this praying nurse who was a follower of Jesus. And then this church that stood up and said, this is not happening here, that all of those plans begin to unwrap. So this morning, we pray as if life and eternity depends on it. That the heartbeat of heaven will fall. That a downpour of the kingdom of God will come. And that we will go out of this place today as risen people who live victorious. Kip, will you come lead us in some songs or a song? Let's stand together. Let's sing. Just as I am.